We, the police, who are on a day-to-day basis at the front lines trying to determine uh, how best to pursue public safety, we know that if you require us to, to elicit inf- immigration uh, information and otherwise incorporate us into the immigration-related uh, enforcement apparatus, we are going to have a harder time eliciting information and cooperation from people who are witnesses to or victims of crime. The policy dispute gets settled by Congress, which has plenary authority over immigration. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Briefly the legal podcast brought to you by the University of Chicago Law Review. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the federal government's immigration policy enforcement and sanctuary cities, local and state governments that wish to avoid taking an active role in immigration policy or even frustrate attempts to enforce federal policy. We conducted two separate interviews with two different law professors. First, we have John Eastman, the Henry Salvatore Professor of Law and Community Service and the former dean of Chapman University, Fowler University of Law. And Aziz Huck, Frank and Bernice J. Greenberg, Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. The city of Chicago can be termed a sanctuary city and opposes complying with federal immigration policies. The term sanctuary city has really... Uh, emerged as a, a kind of blanket way of talking about municipal and state level policies that opt for less rather than more cooperation with federal law enforcement authorities. That's Professor Huck. Our listeners might ask, why does the federal government need any help from local police forces? Given the inability of our federal bureaucratic apparatus under the Department of Homeland Security to plausibly go after, to plausibly interdict 11 million people, or even a a small fraction of that. Uh, A debate has arisen about when and how state and local law enforcement, who are in numerical terms the most important boots on the ground, when and how state and local law enforcement should be involved in uh, the 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 enforcement of immigration law against undocumented immigrant immigrant. If that's the case, then what interest does a state or local government have in refusing to cooperate with the federal government? Well, the the biggest argument has been that they have a policy of inclusive p- community policing, and that if the police are in the uh, position of having to squeal on illegal immigrants to the federal officials then folks who are unlawfully present in their community will be less likely to come forward and cooperate with police in the investigation of crime. That's Professor Eastman. Um, you know, that's uh, that's not bad. But, the you know, the, the folks that are oftentimes the, the, the prey of uh, criminals in the illegal immigrant community are, are themselves here illegally. Um, uh, and and facilitating enforcement of the immigration laws, particularly for those that are committing additional crimes um, while they are here unlawfully, would seem to provide a measure of security in those communities that they're not otherwise getting. But, but you know, that's a policy dispute on whether those community policing policies are better for the local illegal immigrant community or not. The policy dispute gets settled by Congress, which has plenary authority over immigration. Professor Huck had a different take on that same policy dispute. And I think that the argument that the city would make, or cities w- will make, 
and, and you start to see this in their briefs, is, is the following. We, the police, who are on a day-to-day -day basis at the front lines trying to determine uh, how best to pursue public safety, we know that if you require us to, to elicit inf immigration uh, information and otherwise incorporate us into the immigration-related uh, enforcement apparatus, we are going to have a harder time eliciting information and cooperation from people who are witnesses to or victims of crime. And a state of the world in which crime victims and crime witnesses do not come forward because they are afraid that either they or somebody they are familiarly uh, or otherwise connected to will be swept up in immigration enforcement will be a meaningfully more violent and uh, 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 more criminogenic state of affairs. But how do we balance the two sides? What exactly is the line between state and federal interests? On the one hand, Professor Eastman maintains that the Supremacy Clause clearly controls and the federal government has a right to impose its policies upon the states. You have to look at who has the uh, Supremacy Clause on its side and which policy is going to be governing. And that is pretty clearly established in the Constitution. It's the federal government in matters that are delegated to its authority. And immigration matters are clearly delegated to the authority of the federal government and not reserved to the states. So with all that in mind, federal control of immigration and the police powers of the state, the natural question is why can't the federal government simply order the states to enforce its immigration policy? Professor Huck explains that this case might be governed by the anti-commandeering doctrine. A doctrine called the anti-commandeering doctrine, uh, which uh, uh, comprises two cases decided by the Supreme Court in the 1990s uh, called New York versus United States, and Prince versus the United States, that hold that the federal government cannot issue a commandment directly to and only to state legislative or executive officials. So, for example, the Prince case concerned a, a statute called the Brady Act that required sheriffs and other local law enforcement officials to run background checks of a certain kind uh, prior to the purchase of a firearm of particular people either within their jurisdiction or who had previously resided in the jurisdiction. So the, the Brady Act imposed an obligation on and only on state officials. Right? It, 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 an, an obligation that probably in practice involve 30 seconds, 40 seconds of their time per application. Notwithstanding the de minimis nature of the obligation in Prince, the Supreme Court invalidated that provision of the Brady Act on the ground that the federal government has no power to command through law state legislative or executive officials sure so there's a there's a doctrine in constitutional law that goes right to the heart of our uh, bifurcated system of government what we call federalism we've got a federal government and then we have different state governments and they are different sovereign governments and the federal government can't just enlist or commandeer state officials to enforce federal law 
Um, that would be an intrusion on state sovereignty. But what the federal government can do is say, we've got a grant program here, and if you want access to our grant program, we'd like you to do the following things. As long as they're related to the grant program, that's not commandeering of federal officials. That's giving them money to help us do something that we want you to help us do. So the federal government can't just tell the states what to do. But the Supreme Court has said that it's all right to condition the receipts of federal funds on meeting some conditions. But those conditions must be related to the purpose of the funds. Well, the, the relatedness prong of this spending clause conditions test is fairly loose. Uh, uh, years ago, the Supreme Court, in a case called South Dakota versus Dole, upheld a condition that states change their law regarding the minimum drinking age from 18 to 21 as a condition for receiving federal highway funds. And the court held that that was related because if people drink when they're underage and they want to go to another jurisdiction that has a lower drinking age, uh, that might increase uh, 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 threats on the highway or undermine safety of the highways. And since safe highways is the reason we're giving those funds, it's related or close enough for government work. But Professor Huck believes that there is a manner in which the funds need to be conditioned. So first, it has to be Congress rather than uh, the executive. Hence, what matters here is whether the conditions that the Attorney General has articulated are ones that can be found in a federal statute, right? But there's a second part to the court's enforcement of this uh, constitutional value of federalism, and this second part of the rule states that where conditions are imposed upon a state or local actor as a consequence of the receipt of federal funds, those conditions have to be clear on the face of the statute. And in cases after Dole, and in particular there's a, a case called Sosamon, which concerns the species of damages actions that states open themselves up to as a consequence of receiving federal funding for prisons. Cases like Sosamon say it is not enough for a condition to be implied from a federal statute. Sosamon enforces what, what you might call a super clear statement rule. So the federal government can condition the funds, but those conditions must be germane to the purpose of the funds themselves. So, the new administration has attempted to condition the receipt of what's known as burn grants, federal funds that go directly to state and local police forces throughout the nation. These grants are what's known as formulaic, which means that when Congress created them, they set out a formula for measuring how much money each locality should receive. However, Congress has provided elsewhere that the Attorney General can ensure that any grant recipient is in compliance with, quote, all other applicable federal laws. The Byrne Grant, the Edward J. Byrne uh, Federal uh, 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 Grant Program, is a long-standing conditional spending program. This means it's money appropriated by Congress that's given either to states or to local law enforcement for the purpose of public safety protection. Right? And the statute explicitly describes its purposes as, as, as aiding uh, federal aid, aiding state and local jurisdictions in pursuing public safety ends. The statute contains a formula, a formula that looks to things like population, 
crime rates and the like to determine how much money a particular jurisdiction obtains. The statute does uh, contain language that directs the Justice Department to assure compliance with certain uh, uh, federal statutory measures. And it is a point of contention in the litigation over the statute precisely what the meets and bounds of that condition are. Right. These meets and bounds are the key to the dispute in City of Chicago v. Sessions, the immigration dispute between the Trump administration and Chicago. So uh, the City of Chicago versus Sessions case is one of several that have been filed around the country challenging um, the uh, decision of the Department of Justice to start imposing conditions on federal grants that um, require some assistance uh, by local officials in the enforcement of federal immigration laws. The Chicago case, uh, I think, was a very well-reasoned um, judicial opinion, kind of bifurcating which conditions are permissible under existing statutory authority and which are not. But effectively, what the Department of Justice sought to do is condition federal grants on compliance with a federal law um, that uh, requires states not to prohibit their officials from providing information to immigration officials. So, in the past year, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has sought to condition those grants to police forces to force cities to either forego the federal funds or comply with federal immigration enforcement. The city of Chicago is trying to avoid cooperating with federal immigration enforcement. One of the key statutes that issued here is Title VIII, Section 1373. Our guests had slightly different interpretations of that federal statute. Professor Eastman interprets it more broadly. Yes, uh, Title VIII, uh, uh, Section 1373, passed back in 1996 uh, during the administration of President Bill Clinton, and he signed it. It prohibits any federal, state, or local government entity from prohibiting or in any way restricting any governmental entity or official from sending to or receiving from immigration officials information regarding the immigration statuses uh, of any individual. Professor Huck had a more narrow interpretation. Uh, to the extent that a state or local law affirmatively prohibits a state or local law enforcement official from disclosing information, it seems to me that law is plausibly thought to be preempted. But the federal statute is itself written in very narrow terms. It, you have to have a formal prohibition or restriction, and it has to concern the sending to or receiving of information. Right? That's not that's a that's a fairly carefully drawn statutory provision. But state and local law enforcement is perfectly able to operate or to create systems whereby there is no formal or informal mechanism for sharing information, right? That is perfectly consistent with federal law, right? So even with respect to the uh, narrow question of sharing information, there are a range of, of positions that local law enforcement might take from, on the one hand, affirmatively sharing all information salient to alienage that comes their way, and actively going uh, uh, the extra step of engaging in interdictions and apprehensions for immigration purposes alone, to, uh, on the other hand, actively uh, disclosing, act or actively prohibiting the disclosure of such information as a categorical matter under local law, 
And that last position, the, 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 the possibility of a categorical prohibition on disclosures, is the one position that federal law prohibits and therefore preempts. So remember that Professor Eastman believes that the city of Chicago's local ordinance violates federal law. He believes that it prevents Chicago police officers from speaking with federal immigration officials. If that were true, it would violate the federal statute, Section 1373. But it seems like Professor Huck believes he's found a way to square that circle and interpret 1373 narrowly enough to avoid this conflict. Moving on from the text of the statute itself, let's look at the conditions Attorney General Jeff Sessions is trying to impose on these federal funds. The three conditions that are mentioned in the, the Attorney General's letter are, are first to certify compliance with uh, the statute that I mentioned, 1373. Second, to ensure access to correctional facilities on behalf of DHS officials for law enforcement purposes. So this would be literally allowing a DHS agent into uh, a facility such as the Cook County lockup for the purposes of ascertaining whether an individual is deportable or perhaps for the purpose of, of actually physically removing that person. The third condition is an advanced notification provision. So before an individual who is uh, undocumented is released from a state or local facility, a jail or a prison, the condition would require that the federal government be notified uh, of that release within a certain time period. Now, notice that that condition is subtly bundled with another condition. Because if, if a locality is to comply with the advance notice provision, scrupulously, they have to know the status of the person they're holding. But, but many jurisdictions have a, a, a local or a state law that precludes the official the, working for the state or local government from inquiring about alienage or immigration status. So... The, the third condition proposed by the Attorney General in fact comes with a, 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 a subtly bundled obligation to inquire and uh, to acquire information about a, a person who's being detained's immigration and alienage status. Right? Professor Huck doesn't feel that the conditions are appropriate for the burn grant system. Um, there, there would also be an issue, although I think it would be a, a, a more tenuous legal claim on the part of the state or municipality, that one element of the test for valid conditional spending established by South Dakota v. Dole had not been met. And that, that condition would be a, a, the, the germaneness condition. This is the idea that if something is conditioned on uh, federal funding, it has to be uh, salient to, relevant to, tightly connected in some fashion to the subject of the grant making. I think what makes this case that we're hypothesizing an interesting one is that you have two official actors that the court in different contexts recognizes as expert voices telling it different things, right? Uh, so you have the federal government on the one hand saying the more people we deport, the safer we'll be. Uh, the, and on the other hand, you have the locality saying, no, no, no. Uh, the, the more close cooperation we have from 
uh, victims and witnesses in the community, the less crime we will have. And, and it's true that there is at the bottom of that dispute an empirical fact of the matter. In most instances, I think courts, I, I, I don't think courts could not get to the bottom of the fact of the matter. I, I, I think it's actually the case that it's pretty straightforward you often to figure out what the evidence on balance supports. And I think that legal academics and, and non-legal academics do that all the time. Um, I think that what courts, though, tend to do is to rely, as you suggest, upon expertise. But what do you do when there are two competing claims that are expertise premised by different state actors of various kinds? Uh, I, I don't think that the burn grants are, are of the magnitude at the state level are of the Medicaid grants that were at issue in, um, in, in the Sibelius case. But all of that's to say that this is a different case. And so um, I'm not sure that Sibelius has, on the face of its text, enough clues to tell us or to direct an outcome in this case. As Professor Huck notes, there are a number of arguments that can be used to challenge the Attorney General's conditions in the city of Chicago, as well as any future attempts by the Attorney General to similarly condition federal funds. These conditions are nationwide and have been challenged throughout the country by various pro-immigration parties. But while the facts in the city of Chicago are not unique, Professor Eastman suggests that the decision itself is a notable departure from comparable court orders for another reason. What I was impressed by with the Chicago ruling is that the judge actually looked at the statutes, got well you know, deep into them. And like I say, I'm not as deep into those statutes as he got, uh, so I don't know whether he was accurate in his reading or not. But he at least uh, engaged in the kind of statutory interpretation inquiry we expect from our judges rather than just issuing a ruling on what he thought ought to be the outcome, whether the law compelled it or not. One of the core canons of construction is if you've got a couple of reasonable interpretations on a law or, or uh, an executive order in that case, and one of them makes it unconstitutional and the other perfectly reasonable construction makes it constitutional. You have to go with the, con the constitutional version. And, and that's particularly true when you got the Department of Justice that authored the order saying it doesn't mean what you think it, it doesn't mean what you're saying it means. Um, but that, you know, the, the, the goal was not to faithfully apply the law there. The goal was to strike down an initiative of the president. Um, and the notion that the judges are being complicit in this lawfare that's going on against the and it's not just against the president. We have to remember the lawfare against the president for policies on which he was elected means lawfare against the very notion of an elected system of government and, and challenging the results of the last election. By unelected officials, by judges uh, who ought not to be in that business at all. The court made quite clear that there are a whole range of other grants that are in a different statutory chapter where there is an explicit delegation of authority to impose conditions that's given to the attorney general or the secretary of Homeland Security. So on all of those grants, uh, it would be permissible to impose such conditions. Reading the opinion in City of Chicago, the judge seems to make it pretty clear that other grants could in fact be conditioned to achieve the same ends. The court made quite clear that there are a whole range of other grants that are in a different statutory chapter where there is an explicit delegation of authority to impose conditions that's given to the Attorney General or the Secretary of Homeland Security. So on all of those grants, uh, it would be permissible to impose such conditions. 
Professor Eastman believes that the Trump administration will do exactly that, condition other federal funds to achieve the same ends. You know, President Trump has a pretty big uh, bargaining chip in his pocket at the moment, and that is the, um, the, the, the uh, statutory request he's made to fix the DACA problem. But he's now imposed, look, the, the DACA people are here illegally. President Obama pretended they were here lawfully or gave them a lawful presence status uh, without any legal authority whatsoever. You want to fix the DACA program, then here are some additional things I want. And he could easily ask for one of them to be, uh, give me the delegated authority to impose conditions to seek help at the local level on enforcement of our immigration laws. If that's the case, if the federal government can achieve the same ends by different means, then why is this fight so important? I think if you asked attorneys in the city of Chicago, well, what are you fighting? And isn't it the case that some future iteration of this um, of this uh, grant program might uh, do what you don't want it to do? I think those attorneys, and I should flag that my colleague David Strauss's wife is the chief litigation uh, uh, corporate counsel in, for the city of Chicago. I think what they would say is, so be it, but we get one year in which the condition doesn't apply, and so we don't care. If, you know, fine, it, 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 if it happens down the road, it happens down the road, but we're, we're here to uh, pursue the policy preferences of the mayor in this time period, not in the next time period. This has been an episode of Briefly, the podcast brought to you by the University of Chicago Law Review. This episode was produced by Tom Garvey, Tom Malloy, and John Tankin. Music from bensound.com, with special thanks to the entire online team at the Law Review, including Grace Bridwell, Noel Ottman, and Catherine Running. And of course, our editor in chief, Pat Ward, and executive editor, Kyle Jorstad. Thanks for listening. <laughs>